Right, hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers, everyone. I'm Dale, the real. I'm your host, Dale, the real seeker. There we go, got it out. Um, okay, so so um, this is a special episode. Uh, Barry Schwartz is back, part two. He's giving his master's presentation, as you guys will see in a little bit. But uh, just wanted to make um, a couple announcements before we begin this episode very quickly here. So first is I usually never edit my episodes. Uh, usually, you know, what you see is what you got in the show kind of thing. I, I Number one, I'm lazy. I don't, I don't, it takes a lot of effort to edit these stupid things in Lightworks. It takes a long time and stuff like that. So when I'm in a rush, I... I prefer not to, and also, uh, yeah, I like to give a free, a full show kind of thing, right? Um, have you guys know exactly what was said and stuff like that? I don't t try to edit because then you, there's a danger. Oh, are you taking people out of context? Are you doctoring stuff or whatever? So, for the most part, I tend to just post the shows as is um, for most of my shows. Over this time, it's going to be different. Um, so most of the show is going to be as is, but there is a little bit at the end. Um, where both of my guests, so Barry, Barry and uh, my co-host, Teddy Pappas, requested or thought that it would be a good idea if I kind of edited out a little bit at the end, maybe like, it'll probably be about five minutes or so that'll be missing, where things got a little bit heated. Um, just, you know, they have a difference of opinion in terms of their approach. And out of respect for them, I, I thought it would be best as the host yeah, let, let me honor kind of their wishes and uh, kind of leave in, okay, well, what, what it is in terms of their difference of approach, but where it gets repetitive and, and kind of heated, we don't need to see that. So, yeah, um, so just be aware there's going to be, a, at, towards the end, there's going to be a bit of a, a weird jump because I edited out about five minutes or so of conversation, something like that, five between five and ten minutes, something like that. Um, the other thing that I want to say, really, really important for uh, my audience, because um, when I had, regarding my friend, um, Teddy Pappas, who, um, she was the one of the Christian co-hosts on the show, and I thought she was going to mention during the show um, about her situation with her uh, uncle, uh, her uncle Teddy, who's um, unfortunately at this point passed away, but dur during the show... Uh, he was in the hospital. He was not. He's ninety-four years old. His name is Teddy. So, you know, obviously Teddy was named after the, her uncle here, and she cares an awful lot about him and everything like that. Obviously, um, so at the time, I, I thought she was gonna at least mention that she was in the hospital, trying to look after her uncle and ask for some prayers from you guys. Um, now, unfortunately, at this point, um, I've just found out that her uncle did, in fact, pass away. So. It, doesn't make sense to ask for prayer, healing prayers or something, but I would just sit, put forward to my audience, number one, please pray for Teddy Pappas, for, for um, you know, her and her family who are struggling with this recent death of, of someone that, you know, they really loved and everything. And thankfully he was 94 years old, so he did have a long life. He was saved, so, you know, thankfully... There is that good news that he's with Jesus now, and and uh, I hope that's comforting. But um, the yeah, the, the point of me mentioning that is for those in the audience who are Christians and believe in or believe in God. Um, you know, if you're willing, please say a prayer for Teddy and her family as they're going through this hard time with the loss of her beloved uncle. Um, and second, and the last thing um, for for Teddy uh, Pappas, I hope this is helpful. 
obviously, uh, I want to dedicate this episode with Barry Schwartz um, in honor of your uncle, uh, in honor of your uncle. Um, and, you know, I want uh, your hard work in this episode and everything you do on the Shroud, you know, it's a credit to his name. You're named after him. So, um, yeah, th this is my way of kind of dedicating and, and honoring the memory of, of your uncle. So I hope that, that that's appreciated or, or a gesture of um, appreciation for the work that you do, Teddy, and for, and for your uncle for helping to uh, do something right and, and to raise you the to be the way you are and to be feisty for defending the Lord and stuff like that. So... Yeah, with that said, that, that's it for announcements. Um, I'll get straight into the episode there. So, all right, take care. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today we have uh, a special treat. Uh, guess who's back? Barry Schwartz. Hey, Barry. Hello, Dale. How you, are? How you doing? I'm very well. Welcome back to the show. I think um, you've been on at least three times now, so you're... Uh, no stranger. I'm not counting, Dale. <laughs> you know, that's the same thing Bob said when I said the same thing. Um, all right, cool. And once again, uh, Barry's not alone. I, I have a couple of uh, Christian co-hosts who've been on as well. Um, so, uh, Daniel. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Dale. Uh, this is my third time, I believe. So, I I count, Barry. So There you go. <laughs> you can count. I'm, I'm, I'm too old to count. <laughs> All right, and also my other co-host, uh, Teddy Pappas. Hey, Teddy. Hello, how are you? Great to be here. Awesome, awesome. I've are lost you... count. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't, I've lost count too. You're infinite or something, I don't know. But um, <laughs> anyways, so, so yeah, so today uh, we're continuing on with my Barry Schwartz is back, part two. Um, and it's going to be a really exciting episode because we have Barry giving part of his master's course, uh, evaluating uh, some of the image forming, artistic image forming mechanisms and, you know, what we, what we know about the shroud images on the basis in relation to those theories. Um, but just before I, we get into that presentation, I want each of my guests to just kind of give a short little introduction. So um, yeah, Barry, uh, obviously the audience knows who you are, but do you want to just kind of maybe, what have you been up to since the last time you've been on the show? Well, uh, what have I been up to? Um, answering 150 to 200 emails a day, processing uh, contributions and orders, answering people's questions, preparing uh, the PowerPoint, updating the PowerPoint for today's presentation, and just getting ready to start on the final update of shroud.com for this year, which will come out at the end of November, the beginning of December. So needless to say, it's been hectic. And we did have our first snowfall the other day up here in the mountains, nice. um, about two inches, nothing too big, but, uh, but it's uh, starting to be like winter time up here. So now I feel ashamed because I'm a Canadian and we haven't had any snow at all, not even close. So, um, yeah, well, it, it's amazing. Um, I, just a little tidbit, but um, did you know the most Southern point of Canada is more further south than parts of California, which yeah. is crazy to me. I, I didn't know that, but apparently, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, all right, cool. And um, Teddy, yeah. So Teddy, do you, do you want to kind of, what, what have you been up to? And just, you know, if you have anything to say. Just uh, reading, researching, thinking of different experiments concerning the, uh, the Shroud of Turin. Uh, 
writing, just the whole ball of wax, thinking about, the, I mean, it, it just never ceases to amaze me how the more in-depth you look at things regarding the shroud, the more questions come. I mean, that's not what the normal process is when you research something. Normally, the, the more you research it, you find answers. And, and the beauty of it is, is that we, we find, and I, I believe that this is by design, that we find enough evidence to, to tell us that this is something that is not going to be explainable in a, in a natural way. And that, because, you know, just like, like the things that Barry's going to be getting into, I don't want to uh, get into that. He'll be getting into that, but it's like, what, what is it? And then we, we start to use logic and reason and evidence to try to figure, to make sense of what we're seeing. So I, I just find that to be um, such an interesting aspect of, of studying the shroud. It, it never ceases to amaze. I'm convinced most of us, if not all, will eventually land in the loony bin with padded cells, but I, I'm, I'm hoping at least that we'll all be on the same floor so we can still talk more about the shroud. But it's a great way to go, you know, bonkers, trying to figure it out. Let, let, me, let me quickly interject that um, recently Joe Marino wrote a paper uh, trying to list all the disciplines and sub-disciplines that are involved in the study of the shroud. And when he first approached me and we were talking about it, I thought maybe 30 or 40, it's over 90 different wow. disciplines and sub-disciplines. So when people say, well, it's either it is or it isn't, it should be a simple question. Well, I wish it were. I'm, I'm only 45 years into this and we still have more unanswered questions than answered questions. Even the most simple things, when you start to delve into the, it, it's not that things aren't what the chemistry says, but the complexity of it all, it just keeps, it, it's, what is it? Isn't it the hydra where you cut off one head and five new ones pop up? I mean, yeah. I've never seen, there. I don't think there's ever gonna be anything like it. Uh, and by design. Guys, I'm, I'm on my 46 PhD right now. You know, just give me a couple of years and I'll, I'll get the 90. But uh, <laughs> so, so uh, Daniel, uh, I also want to give you a chance. Um, so I've had you, uh, I've been a bad host. I've had you as a guest on the show before, but I've never given you a chance to explain like, you know, who you are and, and um, how you came to knowledge about the Shroud and maybe a little bit about your faith journey if, if you want to share that. Oh, well, my faith journey is never really the most interesting one, sort of just nominal Christian, uh, grew up in it, and then just started studying like a uh, little uh, science, philosophy, religion when I was a teenager, trying to answer some big questions. Um, in regards to the shroud and stuff like that, uh, I didn't really think much of it. I think uh, like most people, like when they first encounter it, they, their intuition is, that's eh, probably a fake. Um, and then I was uh, just listening to a couple of lectures online and up popped this one weird lecture from some Catholic like televangelist channel and up pops uh, this man named Barry Schwartz basically going through all the data. And I went, oh, it's probably real. 
Um, didn't think too much about that until a couple months later, I just started reading about it. And I started reading some of the attempted theories to try and explain it. And it just went, okay. I Then I got a little bit of the hook in it. And I'm like, okay, I got to di uh, dip my toes in a little bit deeper into this literature. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> as much as I can. So Awesome. Well, yeah. well, it sounds like I should get this Barry Schwartz guy on the show sometime. Though. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah, might be a good idea, Deal. <laughs> yeah. All right. yeah, if I can interject something just real quick, um, you made me think of something, Daniel, and that is just that uh, with at 15, when I read my first book on the shroud, and I, I hadn't read anything beyond that until uh, probably a decade later in terms of reading the scientific papers. But um, when I so I was 15 and uh, it, right when the radiocarbon dating results came out in uh, a couple of years later, uh, I was uh, 17 and a half, 18, it was my freshman year in college. And I remember they announced it on the radio. And I, I told my mom, I said, there's something wrong with the, the testing. I said, just from reading that one book and all learning all of the evidence as like a 17 and a half or 18 year old could already tell there is no way there is this is an outlier this this is baloney um there's something wrong with that test it, and it's like I just and I, I it, it didn't shake my um understanding of the evidence and what is authentic not even this much because when there's a mountain of evidence pointing in one direction and one piece of evidence going in the other well something's wrong with that one piece that's what logic tells you and the, and the odds too so all right all right awesome so yeah so so that's who the players are um so i think the first the first thing to do barry um i have set it up so you can share your screen um yeah i'll turn it to you to give your your presentation and then we'll come back and ask questions after. Okay, well, uh, before I even share my screen, let me say a couple of things. For anybody who's seen any of my previous uh, presentations, you know, they're, historically there are lots of photographs, very few words on the screen. Um, I don't like to read to people. That's what we do with our kids and we try and put them to sleep. And so it's the last thing I wanna do with an audience. But this particular lecture, um, or came from a lecture in the master's course that I teach at the Pontifical University in Rome. And I've simplified it a little bit, but it's much more technical. There's a lot more verbiage and words on the screen. So it's not the typical lots of photos. There's still plenty of images, everything's illustrated, but there's also a lot more text. Um, and so it's, it's kind of important for people to know that uh, I'm gonna do my best to keep you awake and, and not read to you too much, but I, I, I have to do it. This is a different kind of presentation because in the master's program, there is a quiz at the end, not today here, but <laughs> so it, it has to be a lot more detailed. Uh, a couple of things uh, besides the text, the title of this is, what do we know for sure about the image on the shroud? This is not a, a presentation that's gonna tell you the answer to that question. This is a presentation that's going to address four major uh, skeptical claims about the Shroud's image. And I'm gonna try and do my best to shoot a hole in it, all four of them. So this is what we know for sure the image is not. So even though it doesn't quite say that in the title. And also I'm gonna make a lot of references to papers and articles and uh, test plans and things of that nature. 
I have given Dale a whole list of links that he's going to publish along with uh, the YouTube video so that you can go to all these. But any papers that were STIRP papers are all on one page of Shroud.com. And that link is uh, one of the links I've given to Dale. So I think uh, those are the disclaimers. And now let me see if I can get my screen share going here. How's that working? Can you see that? No, it's not uh, popping up. Um, did you? Eugene, we have a problem. When you clicked on share screen, did you click on, like it gives you a bunch of windows to, to select if you select the right Hold one. on a sec here. Let me go back to this. All right, let me click on share screen again. There you go. Hold on. All right, give me a sec. How about now? So what do we know for sure about the image? Yep, showing up. Okay, good. So with that in mind, I will begin. And as I said, we're gonna talk a lot about uh, STIRP peer-reviewed published papers. This is a, just a, a list of most of them, but not all of them. They're all listed at the link that's shown at the bottom there. So uh, this is just to give you a sense of the source material that are primary sources. These are sources based on direct physical examination of the shroud and data taken directly from the cloth. And I always remind people that a primary source is the best place to start because many of the other papers written since then, since no further data has been taken from the shroud, um, are secondary or tertiary sources so the primary sources should always be the first go-to sources to begin. Now, with that in mind, um, I'm going to just quickly show you that on the website is a summary of STIRP's conclusions. Now, uh, STIRP never published a single final report. The final report was technically all of those papers I just showed you. Um, but I, I sort of on this page, I said, well, they published a final report. Actually, what this is, is a summary of all our conclusions written by John Heller, put together into a press release that was then handed out at the final meeting of STIRP in October of 1981. So uh, we're gonna go through this just so I review with you what STIRP concluded. And now I have to start reading to you. So no pigments, paints, dyes, or stains have been found on the fibrils. X-ray, fluorescence, and microchemistry on the fibrils preclude the possibility of paint being used as a method for creating the image. Ultraviolet and infrared evaluation confirm these studies. Computer image enhancement and analysis by the VP8 image analyzer show that the image has unique three-dimensional information encoded in it. I have to add, I'm not fond of the term three-dimensional, uh, spatial, topographic, or depth information is more accurate in my opinion. Uh, microchemical evaluation has indicated no evidence of any spices, oils, or any biochemicals known to be produced by the body in life or in death. It's clear that there has been a direct contact of the shroud with the body, which explains certain features such as scourge marks as well as blood. However, while this type of contact might explain some of the features of the torso, it's totally incapable of explaining the image of the face with the high resolution that's been amply demonstrated by photography. Basic problem from a scientific point of view is that some explanations which might be tenable from a chemical point of view are precluded by physics. 
contrary wise, not a word I would typically use, John Heller used, certain physical explanations which may be attractive are completely precluded by the chemistry. For an adequate explanation for the image on the shroud, one must have an explanation which is scientifically sound from a chemical, physical, biological, and medical viewpoint. At the present, this type of solution does not appear to be obtainable by the best efforts of the members of the shroud team. Furthermore, experiments in physics and chemistry with old linen have failed to reproduce adequately the phenomenon presented by the Shroud of Turin. The scientific consensus is that there are no chemical or physical methods known which can account for the totality of the image, nor can any combination of physical, chemical, biological, or medical circumstances explain the image adequately. I might throw in here that uh, Rogers, who had one of his own theories, told me he felt there was something else working in addition to what he proposed might be an image formation mechanism. So basically, the only correct answer right now is we still don't know. Now, continuing on. Thus, the answer to the question of how the image was produced or what produced the image remains now, as it has in the past, a mystery. We can conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an artist. The blood stains are composed of hemoglobin and also give a positive test for serum albumin. The image is an ongoing mystery. And until further chemical studies are made, perhaps by this group of scientists, or perhaps by some scientists in the future, the problem remains unsolved. So the only correct answer, and, I, and I've said this publicly before, that if I want to be totally honest, when somebody asks me, well, what do I think, the, how do the image was formed? The only answer I can honestly give is, we really don't know. So what do we know for sure? Much of the data gathered by the STIRB team is rather technical and resides in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Sadly, very little of it filtered out to the general public who constantly hear in the popular media that the shroud is a fake or a hoax. SERP was great at doing science, but not very good at public relations. Remember, many of them worked in the weapons field. Frankly, the guys from Los Alamos and Sandia Labs, who were both explosives weapons labs, they saw the media as the enemy, and they weren't very good. And I have always said that the biggest mistake that I can think of that Sturt made in the time that we were doing this was not getting a professional media consultant to become our spokesman that knew how to deal with the media so we could issue a little press release every day. Instead, while we were in Turin, we were forbidden to speak to the press. And all you have to do is tell a reporter, I'm sorry, I'm forbidden to talk to you. And then they chase you down the street asking you questions. And so that was the one thing we didn't do very well. And uh, in retrospect, hindsight, of course, is 2020, would have been great if we'd had a real pro in that position that could have handled our public relations a little better. I think Sterp's credibility might be even higher today uh, if that had been the case. In the end, Sterp's primary goal was to answer a single question, how is the image formed? And that dictated the specific tests we performed and the resulting data that we collected. But in the end, we could not answer that single question. We could tell you what it's not, not a scorch, not a painting, not a rubbing, not a photograph, but we could not determine a single mechanism that could create an image with all the specific chemical and physical properties found on the shroud. So this lecture will use the STIRP data and some more recent scientific evidence to specifically address some of the most common claims made by skeptics and that the shroud image is a medieval painting, a scorch, a rubbing, or a medieval photograph. Of course, 
It can't be all of them. So only one of those, it, assuming any of them were correct at all, only one of them could be. With that in mind, we'll exclude any anecdotal or non-scientific evidence and respond to each claim based primarily on the data collected by STERP, the knowledge gained and conclusions drawn from that data, and the results they published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. These are primary sources based on their direct physical examination of the cloth and should be the starting point for any researcher wanting to study the shroud. They are the foundation of the important scientific data published on this enigmatic relic. In other words, this is what we know for sure. So we have the skeptics theories. The shroud image is a beautiful painting. Obviously, uh, this comes from Walter McCrone, who published it in a magazine that he owned and edited called The Microscope, but not in any peer-reviewed scientific journals. Now, it turns out that he did actually publish one article in a peer-reviewed journal. And it's funny because uh, years ago uh, on the Macron website, Macron Institute website, uh, there was a page for the shroud that used to list all of uh, Macron's uh, articles from the microscope and that one peer-reviewed one. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got approached by a, a Macrony, a shroud skeptic uh, who believed in Macron above everything else. And uh, I pointed out to him that, look, the work Macron did and published in his own journal did not meet the same high standards of scientific uh, evaluation that the STERP material did. And interestingly enough, sometime thereafter, all of those papers that were from the microscope have been removed from the Macron Institute website, and only one paper is left there, the one that was peer-reviewed. So, he stated that the shroud's image was painted, as were the bloodstains, which were still red in color because they were made by red iron oxide pigment and not real blood. He claimed he found paint particles on the tape samples he examined. Sterp also reported finding pure red iron, oxi iron oxide particles on the shroud, but noted they were only visible through a microscope scattered evenly across the shroud and were likely the result of the flax redding process. Red iron oxide pigment was always made using cobalt, manganese, and other elements, but none of those were found on the shroud. The STERP data clearly proved that the image was not formed by these particles. Now, this is something that uh, a lot of people didn't know. Walter McCrone never even saw the shroud. He only examined the tape samples taken by Rogers and the STERP team in 78, and only studied them visually, visually using polarized light microscopy. He performed no chemical or spectral analyses on the samples. It is true that McCrone found a few actual paint particles on tape samples, but sadly he failed to consider the 52 documented occasions when artists were permitted to sanctify their painted replicas by laying them onto the shroud and touching them, not only creating an official relic, but also causing an unintentional transfer of microscopic paint particles onto the shroud itself. And some of those copies still exist. In fact, I saw one in Portugal where in the corners of a copy that was made of the shroud, I believe from the Savoy family as a gift when Margaret married one of the Braganza princes of Portugal um, and they gave him a, a copy of the shroud as a gift, sewn into the corners, all four corners of that replica or that copy were little bits and pieces of the shroud that the Savoy family had cut out from the shroud, sewed them in to make them official replicas. As I said, some of those painted copies still exist. And the most recently discovered one 
was found in uh, 1999 in the monastery church in Bruma of Chechia. And the copy bears the Latin words extractum originale taken from the original, indicating it had been in direct physical contact with the shroud. Included with the copy was a letter dated 1651 and signed by the Archbishop of Turin verifying this. This provides a logical explanation for the discovery of the few small particles of pigment found scattered randomly across the Shroud of Turin. The blood on the Shroud was confirmed as blood by spectrographic and chemical analysis. The results were published in the peer-reviewed journal, uh, scientific journal, Applied Optics. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, tried to get your work into Applied Optics, it's one of the most stringent journals out there. Uh, they're not very uh, good at taking stuff that's in the slightest bit controversial. So the fact that they published the work by Heller and Adler is a pretty good testament that their work was sound. Of course, uh, the major advancements in technology over the past 40 years would enable 21st century science to verify Adler's work with even more certainty should future testing ever be permitted. So look, it's 45 years later, basically, and the technology in many of these areas has advanced. So obviously another round of testing, similar to what STIRP did, but using the 21st century technology could put to rest the skeptics claims about some of the data STIRP collected by verifying it or not verifying it. Now, Shroud is a beautiful painting. Well, here we have one of Vern Miller's UV fluorescence photographs. And if you'll notice, there's a serum halo visible only with UV fluorescence photography around that spear wound in the side. Uh, this has been found around many of the blood stains. I don't believe it's on all of them, including some of the scourge wounds that are on the Shroud. So this is another indication that it's not paint because paint doesn't have serum that would come out from the particulate matter via capillarity. So, so why is the blood on the shroud still red? According to Alan Adler, stirp blood chemist, victims of severe torture extending over many hours like the man of the shroud go into shock and over time, their red blood cells start to break down. This, in these cases, they, their liver floods the bloodstream with bilirubin, which breaks down the red blood cells and releases hemoglobin. Adler reported finding high levels of bilirubin in the shroud blood he tested and suggested that under these very rare circumstances, the blood would remain forever red. In recent years, there was, uh, this theory was tested by blood and DNA expert, Dr. Kelly Kearse, who did not get the same results and did not reach the same conclusions as Adler. He did not claim that Adler was wrong, but points out that, again, 21st century science could answer those questions with more certainty. This is another reason why additional testing is needed to help answer the many questions that still remain unanswered. In some cases, the only honest answer is we don't know. I already said that. So Rogers did in-depth studies on linen and found an even more compelling reason for the red color of the blood. It is very likely that the shroud was washed in Saponaria officinalis soapwort, which was used somewhat like a fabric softener after the cloth was manufactured. This was typical of the ancient method of, of uh, producing linen. Here's what Rogers determined. Uh, we found that Saponaria officinalis solutions are hemolytic. They break down the membranes of the red blood cells and release the red hemoglobin. Hemolysis is used to determine the hemoglobin content of blood 
whole blood darkens as it ages on the cloth. However, the blood spots on the shroud are still quite red after centuries of known history. Diane Saran, may she rest in peace, of Los Alamos tested hemolysis on saponaria washed cloth before we went to Turin. The blood is, and again, I'm quoting Rogers, the blood is still red on those 25-year-old samples, although the blood on the non-saponaria washed control samples is black. This fact might help confirm that ancient technology was used to produce the cloth. It also proved it's not paint, it's blood. And this is the paper uh, that uh, describes, the SIR paper that describes the various stains on the cloth. And I'm just going to go into one section here. The chemists, and, and primarily, I'm just going to read you that last part. No evidence was found in the body image of any added substances that could have contributed to the yellow color of the fibrils that form the image. The blood images on the cloth are made of blood. The data taken together do not support the hypothesis that the images on the shroud are due to an artist. Okay. The yellow fibers comprise the shroud image. This is a 64X photomicrograph made by Mark Evans. You can see the yellow coloring up here. You can see that just certain fibers are yellow, some adjacent fibers are not. Do you see any particulates, pigments, paints, binders? No, because they don't exist. Um, and now we talk about the late world-renowned sacred artist, Dame Isabel Pichek, who stated, the task of the arts merely and narrowly is to answer with authority only they can have. Is the Turin Shroud a painting? The study of the support, ground, the paint mediums, and the related techniques and decay, handedness, right or left-handedness, style, directionality, light focus, art anatomy, and geometrical perspective, and experimental art all exclude that the object called the Shroud of Turin could be a painting. Uh, highly respected art historian Thomas DeWesselow, a postdoc research associate at King's College at Cambridge, stated in his 2012 best-selling book, The Sign, uh, accepting the carbonating art historians should have learned that uh, Shroud is one of the most fascin fascinating visual creations of the medieval period, a true masterpiece of devotion and imagery. Strangely, though, they have remained almost entirely silent. The reason is simple. The negative photo of the, uh, of the on the cloth is the unmistakable sign that the shroud famous image could not have been created by a medieval artist. Technically, conceptually, and stylistically, the shroud makes no sense as a medieval artwork. The discipline of art history has had over a century to study the shroud since it was first photographed. And in all that time, no art historian has ever ventured to attribute it to a medieval artist. The spatial or so-called three-dimensional characteristics of the shroud image were first documented in 1976 by Sterp using the VP8 image analyzer prior to their actual examination of the cloth. This marked the first time this property was confirmed using a scientific instrument. Now, I, I want to add here that this was proposed back at the turn of the 20th century in the early 19, uh, 1900s, that there might be depth or spatial information, but they had no way to verify it. And in my uh, Shroud Photography uh, lecture, part one of this series, um, I gave more information about that. Um, but this marked the first time the property was confirmed using a scientific instrument. So up until 
76, people proposed there might be this data encoded. It was the, the importance of the VP8 is it's the first time a scientific instrument actually confirmed that evidence. So uh, the shroud image is the result of the image density being a function of cloth to body distance. In other words, where there was direct contact, the image is darkest as the distance between the cloth and body in, increased. For example, where the hands crossed across the torso, lifted the cloth away from the torso, and you can see around the hands a, a halo where there's less image or more faint image around the hands because the distance had increased. This has been proven mathematically. Now, this is the VP8 analyzer. I like to show it to people. And I uh, often used to say in my lectures, it kind of looks like an old stereo tuner, but today's audiences are so uh, far away from stereo tuners, they don't even know what a stereo tuner is. And I might also add that uh, I actually had a 10-year-old kid ask me if uh, film was a USB device. So, so it's getting more and more difficult to explain to a younger audience that property of the, you know, the negative reversal image on the shroud. This is the actual footage taken off the screen of a VP8. And this is what in 1976, uh, the SERP team, uh, let me clarify, the VP-8 was not a NASA in, uh, instrument. It was not used to map the moon. It had nothing to do with NASA. They had their own technology. This was a VP-8 was over at Sandia Laboratories, which is the sister lab to Los Alamos, also a weapons lab. Bill Modern, an X-radiography specialist, bought himself a VP-8 to see if he could get more data out of his X-rays that he was making of classified stuff that he couldn't tell me about. And so Jackson and Jumper and Ken Stevenson and Don Devan, who's an imaging scientist, um, they were all there. And in 76, I had completed a seven month consulting project as a photographic consultant for Los Alamos, working with Don Devan. And it was all about atomic bombs. And that's all I can say about it. Um, and that's how I got involved. Don Devan called me up and said, hey, you know, we just uh, found that there's a uh, correlation between image density and cloth to body distance on the shroud. And he said, we're going to put a team together. We need a photographer. Are you interested? And my response was no. <laughs> I didn't want to have anything to do. But obviously, I changed my mind the more I thought about that property. And as anybody who's heard me speak in the past knows, I also thought free trip to Italy. So this is the paper that deals with the three-dimensional characteristics. Again, these are all on shroud.com and the links are in uh, uh, going to be on the uh, YouTube uh, page. And here are some of the conclusions. Frontal image on the shroud has a shading structure consistent with a body shape covered with a naturally draping cloth and which can be derived from a single global mapping function relating image shading with distance between the two surfaces. So it's a very technical way of saying what I've already said. This interpretation would be a reasonable explanation for the shroud image if a high resolution mechanism satisfying all image and chemical characteristics of the shroud can be demonstrated. The visible image on the shroud is not the work of an artist in an eye-brain hand coordination sense nor does it appear to be the result of direct body contact or direct contact only, diffusion, radiation from a body shape or engraving, dabbing powder on a bas relief or electrostatic imaging. So even then, before all these theories that are more recent than the STERP work, 
they were already shooting holes in those theories based on the direct physical examination of the cloth that precluded those possibilities. The visible image on the shroud is probably not the result of a hot by relief. Thank you, Joan Nickel, impressed onto the cloth, but such a mechanism might be able to account for the shroud's uh, distance correlation, resolution, and chemical structure. So again, that's one possible thing. It does not seem to simultaneously account for the image residing on one side of the cloth, low contrast of the shroud image, or the lateral distortions in the shroud image consistent with draping a body over, uh, draping the cloth over a body shape. So I think that pretty much precludes the shroud being a beautiful painting. Next, the shroud image is a scorch from a heated statue. Well, we've already challenged that in that last present, uh, part of the presentation, but let's talk about it. Sterp determined that if cloth had been heated enough to scorch it, there would be changes in the structure of the flax fibers and the blood, and there was none. Kinetic studies support a low temperature image formation process. Remember, there are many documented scorches on the shroud to compare to, and Sterp studied them in great detail. So the places on the shroud where the scorches crossed over water stains, image, or blood gave the chemists and the physicists ample opportunity to analyze that and determine that paint and pigments couldn't have been the case, nor could a scorch be the solution. And Joan Nickel proposed that theory. Uh, however, he is a former stage magician and not affiliated with any scientific or academic institution. He's not a scientist. Nickel did not provide one example of a scorched image on linen. A scorch would not have the same chemical and physical characteristics as a shroud image, and Nichols' results were never published in any peer-reviewed scientific journals, just a TV show. So, you know, we're not doing science on TV shows yet. So, scorched linen will fluoresce under certain types of UV illumination. Sterp found that the scorches on the shroud fluoresced as expected, but the image itself did not. In fact, it actually inhibited the yellow-green background fluorescence of the cloth, completely eliminating heat as a possible image formation mechanism. And you can see slight red fluorescence uh, in the areas surrounding the uh, scorches and one of these 1978 uh, Vern Miller UV fluorescence photographs. It's, it's a little hard to see here, but there is a reddish kind of halo around the scorched areas. And there were plenty of them on the shroud to use as control samples. So, but look at the hands. The hands don't show any of that. And if anything, they block the yellow-green background fluorescence. So I just said that, okay. So here's the UV fluorescence paper. And I'm sorry, I'll back, back that up. Again, I'm not gonna quote from this, but again, these papers are all on shroud.com. So let's go to the shroud Im image is a rubbing of iron oxide. Um, let me show you a couple. There's an original image drawn by an artist on newsprint using iron oxide and collagen dust. Then that newspaper, the newsprint was then laid onto a linen fabric and rubbed against it to transfer the image. And this is the photographic negative of the resulting image on linen fabric. Now, this was done by Dr. Emily Craig. And I will say this, this is the closest anyone has ever come to capturing some of the spatial properties in the shroud, but there's a very valid reason why. It should be noted that Dr. Emily Craig spent the first 25 years of her career 
as a professional medical illustrator before going on to get her PhD in forensic anthropology. So artistic skills when it comes to drawing human anatomy are superb. I don't know if you've ever seen medical illustrations, they're photorealistic, they're superb, they're beautiful. And Emily Craig was a master of this. Emily then spent considerable time studying the properties of the shroud image, including the spatial or topographic data encoded into the image density and was able to partially replicate it in her results. However, no medieval or first century artist would have had her artistic expertise and knowledge of anatomy and would certainly not have had the shroud image itself to use as a reference like Emily did. It's an interesting theory, but virtually impossible. Now, this is another iron oxide theory. In October of uh, 2009, Luigi Garlaschelli, an Italian chemistry professor announced that he had reproduced the shroud using simple methods and inexpensive materials available in the 14th century uh, same age as determined by the infamous carbon dating. Well, that's very nice of Luigi. By the way, just, I don't know if I even said it in here. Um, he contacted me. I didn't know who he was. He said he was a chemistry professor. And so I gave him high resolution photographic images, digital files that he could use as a reference. Um, and he actually aged his linen and washed in water. And he used red iron pigment, iron oxide, and applied it to the body. Then the linen cloth was laid on and rubbed over the body's prominent features. Blood stains, burn holes, scorches, and water stains were all added afterwards for final effect. Although Sterp concluded the blood was on the cloth before the image was formed, not afterwards. Uh, and he used my photos as a reference. So let's talk about this iron oxide. In this series of 1978 photomicrographs, uh, various shroud image areas are shown at different magnifications. See if you can find any red iron, iron oxide particles. First image is as small of the back at 32X. And then we go the shroud image at the tip of the nose at 64X. I've already shown you this one before. Again, you can see the yellow fibers, but you don't see any particulate matter. Uh, this is the shroud image at the heel of the foot at 50X. Again, you can see the yellow fibers, but again, no particulates of any kind. And iron oxide, would, you would still see millions of iron oxide particles embedded in the fibers. Remember, this is fibrous material. So if you apply particulate matter to that, it's going to embed itself deep into these fibers over time. And we would see millions of iron oxide particles, yet virtually none was found. Now, although Emily created an interesting image, it was 100% red iron oxide with cobalt and outer elements. The shroud image doesn't consist of any. Also, she never addressed the blood stains. Sterp data showed the blood somehow inhibited the image formation mechanism. There's no image under the blood stains. An artist would first have to have had to apply the blood stains forensically accurately on the cloth and then paint the image around the blood stains. Well, that's just nonsense. Nobody could do that, even today. Um, so Garlish Kelly is the fourth person in 30 years to propose the image was created by iron oxide. Sterp determined by multiple tests that iron oxide did not constitute the image. Sterp data is directly from the shroud. Uh, his image did not have any true spatial or 3D properties like the shroud does. And he ultimately admitted he put the blood on after the image, unlike the shroud. And he also admitted he had not duplicated the, the serum halo that exists on many of the shroud bloodstains. 
So again, you can make something that looks like the shroud. I mean, there are plenty of photographs now on the, of the shroud on the uh, on the internet to use as a reference. And if you look at the two, I mean, the one on the left there, I'm sorry to say, looks more like a cartoon than an actual image of a human being. Um, after scientific review and direct consultation with Garlis Kelly, Tibal Heimberger concluded the properties of his image remain, in fact, very far from the fundamental properties of the shroud image. And again, there's a reference to that. You can find Tibo's article on shroud.com. Uh, it's interesting to note that Galaskelli's claims were made public just before the 2010 public exhibition of the Shroud. It's not a co coincidence that similar claims have occurred every time the Shroud is publicly displayed. And assuming that they are going to display it in 2025, watch how many books come out and how many skeptical claims are made just before the public exhibition. That happens every time. Um, this claim, Italian scientists reproduce the Shroud of Turin was made only by a press release to the Reuters news service and stated that uh, more proof would be made available, uh, no proof would be available until next week. Yet it got immediate global coverage in over 350 media outlets. To my knowledge, his work was never published in any credible scientific journal. Um, LG's efforts were paid for by an Italian group of atheists and agnost agnostics. So we can really reasonably conclude it was agenda driven. They had an agenda. You know, when people talk about the Sterp team and accuse them of being a bunch of religious fanatics, listen, if the Sterp team were a bunch of guys from one organization, that could have been plausible. But we represented 20-some organizations, so not one organization could have influenced everybody else. So that means that Sterp could not have been agenda-driven because we were too diverse. No way. Anyway, scientific rebuttal of uh, Gratis claims was quickly available yet remains basically unreported in the media. And here's uh, the article, Various Stains. Again, I've shown you this one before. And uh, no evidence was found of the body image of any added substances that could have contributed to the yellow color of the fibrils that form the image. The blood images on the cloth are made of blood. The data taken together do not support the hypothesis that the images on the shroud are due to an artist. So again, this shoots Carlos Kelly down too. Okay, here's uh, maybe my favorite part because this is really right up my alley. The shroud image is a medieval photograph possibly produced by Leonardo da Vinci. Now, but before I start this, let me first give great credit to uh, Professor Nicholas Allen. Professor Allen took the initiative to create a camera obscura to, uh, to uh, do an experiment to demonstrate his theory. He hung a statue outside of the camera obscura. And uh, so I give him great credit because unlike so many of these others who postulate ideas like Joan Nickel never actually made a scorched image, Nicholas Allen made a photographic image and did it superbly based on the techniques that he used. So I want to start by giving him credit for that. But let's talk first about what the camera obscura is for those who might not know. It's basically, it's a dark room. And uh, in that dark room, you'll see there's a small hole at the opposite end of the room. And there is a statue that's outside that room out in the sunlight. According to Nicholas Allen, it took four days to expose his film, if you will. That film is on a piece of cloth that he had soaked in a silver nitrate, silver salt solution because silver is light sensitive. That's what we used in uh, photographic film and x-ray film. 
And so he created an image. The only problem I have with it right off the top of my head is that hanging a body for four days in the sunlight, you're not going to get the same result that you get on the shroud because it may start looking like a body at the beginning of those four days, but at the end of those four days, not so much. So, uh, but I give him uh, great credit. And Alan claimed that in the case of the shroud, the sheet was coated with a light sensitive photographic emulsion, primarily made of silver salt, and he used human urine to fix the image. Okay, uric acid can function as a fixer, fixer in the photographic process. To his credit, Nicholas Allen used this technique to produce a beautiful photographic image using a camera obscura and a life-size sculpture. And this is his photograph, which he gave me permission to use in about 1998, I think. Uh, Picknett and Clive Prince, two British authors, not only agreed with Allen, but further suggested that this technique was in fact employed by Leonardo da Vinci to create the shroud. So they took Allen's theory and sort of went beyond that. Now, Nicholas Allen, the one thing he didn't do is he never made a side-by-side -side comparison of his camera obscura results with the image on the shroud. No reasonable conclusion can be drawn without just such a comparison. For example, Allen's photograph shows a strong directionality of light from above. There's a shadow under the chin, under the cheekbones, under the chest, under the hands. His knee and his feet are overexposed. The left, uh, the, his left arm is overexposed. So that's what you would get with a, a long exposure photographic image with a light source coming from above. You would get those shadows. Look at the shroud, however. There's no directionality of light evident on the shroud at all, in no direction of light. Now, the STIRP data proved, and Ray Rogers wouldn't let me use that word very often, I have to admit, but the, the STIRP data proved that the image on the shroud was darkest as a point where the body and cloth came in direct physical contact and at the tip of the nose, top of the hands. The image grew more faint as the distance between cloth and body increased. And this result cannot be accomplished or duplicated using any photographic artistic mechanism that requires some form of direct interaction be between the cloth and the body. That's the only way you can do this. Now, here's an example. The cloth was lifted away from the torso. I mentioned this earlier by the hands crossed over the torso. This lifted the, the cloth away from the torso itself. And if you'll look closely, you'll see that images made by light would not have this property. And you can see a kind of a halo surrounding the hands where there's more faint, the image around the hands is more faint of the torso. And you can see that lighter halo. And here, let me circle it. Within that circle, the background or torso of the body is much more faint than other areas of the torso where the contact was either more direct, closer. And again, you can see that here. Let me see if I can take that out of there. So you can kind of see that dark area around the hands. That's where the torso was further away and created a more faint image and darker on the light dark, light dark reverse negative view. Allen's result also shows a very distinct and sharp edge around the entire image, which one would expect from a, a properly focused photograph. And he did a good job in that respect. But the shroud image has no distinct edges. The image at the periphery just fades away as the distance between the cloth and the body grew greater. The image grows more faint until it just disappears. There are no hard edges anywhere.
on the Shroud's image. Alan makes no attempt to explain the blood and how he got on the cloth. So give the man credit. He did something that Ray Rogers and Al Adler, who used to yell at me, do an experiment, would be very pleased with. He did an experiment, and he just didn't go all the way to make the comparison that I've made to show that, although he did a great job, he did not match the properties of the Shroud of Turin. So what I think, uh, and, and here I'm going to talk about it, I guess, no light-sensitive photographic emulsion or any associated silver salts were found anywhere on the Shroud. And we had highly sensitive spectral and chemical analysis. Uh, our pyrolysis mass spec could, I believe, uh, detect one part per billion with a B. Um, Alan claims that the silver salts were removed completely when he fixed the image. However, the fixer in the photographic process only removes the unused silver not necessary to create the image. What silver remains on the image is what's responsible for the image. If it were all removed, there would be no image as well. The image would be gone. If the shroud were made photographically, we would have found silver salt, silver everywhere on that cloth and even more so in the image areas. Now look, Nicholas said that in, in at least one of his later attempts, that he actually took the cloth and soaked it in a silver solution, liquid silver solution. Well, that means it would have penetrated via capillarity through the entire cloth. And we'd have found silver everywhere. We didn't find any silver except for one microscopic little bead, tiny little bead of silver that may have come from the reliquary from the 1532 fire. We can't say that for sure, but that's the most plausible answer for that. And I just told you all that so we can move on. By the way, not one example of a photographic image exists prior to the documented invention of photography in approximately 1826. And that photograph still exists, there it is. That was by Joseph Nietzschefor Nietzsche. I believe he was either French or Italian, I'm not sure. But that's, his, that's the first photographic negative attributed. And of course, I got this from Wikipedia so that you can see the link there. Uh, and here is, the uh, peer-reviewed journal article, again, from Applied Optics, uh, the UV reflectance and uh, fluorescent specter of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, I also had Kevin Moran, may he rest in peace, apply, uh, he, ha he had a VP8 image analyzer. And so he, uh, we asked him to take a Nicholas Allen photo and, and put it in the VP8 and see what kind of results we got. We did not get the natural release of the human face like we see on the right there. Uh, the mouth is sunken, the chin is raised, the hair is raised, the chest is elevated. Uh, compare that to the relatively undistorted nature of the shroud's facial features. That's what makes it significant, that the VP8 revealed the natural relief of a human form. No other photograph to date that we've tested that way does so. The shroud does. And that, to me, as an imaging guy, tells me there had to be some correlation between the body and the clock when the image formed. It's not a painting scorch or a medieval photograph. So, there, and here's the paper on the three-dimensional characteristics again. Now, let's talk about uh, Leonardo da Vinci. He was born on April 15th, 1452. The first documented public exhibition of the Shroud of Turin occurred in 1355, almost 100 years before Leonardo was born. 
he was a great artist, but he wasn't that good. So, you know, uh, and, and look, this is a self-portrait. So, and Leonardo was so good at documenting everything. We even know the color of the shoelaces of his assistant. And if he had created something like the Shroud of Turin, he wouldn't have kept it a secret. He was a smart man and knew how to promote himself and did very well for himself, even in his own time. And that is what we know for sure. So I will awesome. stop my sharing and come back and now we can talk. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that presentation. Um, I know in my own uh, Shroud solo series, I've adopted a lot of the points that Barry, um, I stole them from him, but, um, and others, the, the people he mentioned. You, did, you didn't steal them. We make them readily available freely to everybody. So there you're, you wel go. you're welcome to them. Exactly. Yeah. All truth is God's truth. It belongs to everybody. So, um, yeah. So, so a lot of the points, yeah. Um, the Barry raises, I think are sound, uh, refutations or in, in science talk falsifications, the principle of falsification. Uh, well, you know, Dale, the biggest problem we have is that once you collect data, then it must be interpreted. That's where human factor really comes into play. Collecting data, you can do that very carefully and scientifically without any influence to the data you've collected. It's how you then analyze that data and the conclusions drawn from your analysis, that's where you can get into problem. And look, we're human beings. We all have our own beliefs and our uh, experience that we draw upon. And so you and I might look at the same piece of data and come to different conclusions. That's fine. That's why we publish the data so that you can then evaluate it and make up your own mind. Yeah, maybe the smartest thing I ever wrote was one sentence in the opening paragraph of Shroud.com that says, we believe that given the facts, you have to make up your own mind about this. And so I'm not a rabbi, a minister, or a priest. I mean, it's not my place to tell people what to believe. And I know I said this to you <coughs> before we started. Um, Science must stay within the observable and the measurable. Faith has no boundaries. So I always tell people, if you want the science to support your faith, there are places where science just can't go. And you can believe what you want to believe, and science must stay within the realm of the scientific method. It's frustrating often because uh, you know, a lot of people have their beliefs they would like to project them through, but the scientific method is very clear that you can't use one unknown to prove another unknown. That's the scientific method. That's what we're bound to stay within. We can step outside of that, but you can't call that science anymore. Then you're talking about faith. And I've said this to people, why do you need science to support your faith? Is your faith so weak that you need the science? And, and look, you know, some people say, well, there's a conflict between faith and science. And I always, you know, I, I think I'm quoting from my TEDx talk in the Vatican, where I said that, uh, well, if I drew a blank autom automatically, that, that science is simply man's attempt to understand God's creation. God gave us that capacity. So I don't see any conflict there other than, you know, people can use it in their own ways to convince people for certain things. But in the end, we were given this gift of thought, of, of the ability to reason. And 
science is our attempt to just understand what's going on around us. So I don't see a conflict there, although many people claim that. I've never felt that. Gotcha. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just back up uh, something you said about the logic behind Barry's approach. So if some of my students are, are watching this, um, hopefully some of them will, um, we're taking logic, right? So the, the principle of falsification is based on a deductive argument pattern known as modus tollens or denying the consequent, right? So you have a conditional, if, if the medieval photograph hypothesis were true, then we would find silver on it. Uh, premise two, we don't find silver on it. Therefore, the medieval photograph hypothesis is false. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's straightforward logic there. So, all right, cool. Um, maybe, maybe I should make some notes. Is there a quiz after your talk? <laughs> there, there's a pop quiz, yeah. Uh, I think I'll save that for Daniel, though. So, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so I, so I have, um, I guess as the host, I'll, I'll ask four quick follow-up questions and I'll reserve most of the time to my two co-hosts to kind of probe you on your presentation. So the first thing I'm interested in that you mentioned uh, to a couple of things regarding the painting hypothesis. So you mentioned that Macron uh, did actually publish at least one uh, outside of the microscope, a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, do, you, do you have like the link for that or? Yeah, uh, here's the thing. Um, when I first built shroud.com, on January, we went online January 21st, 1996. In that first edition, first day that it was online, there was Isabel Pichick's Is the Shroud a Painting article and a direct link to the Macron Institute Shroud page. That link has been on shroud.com for almost 27 years. It's still there. If you go to the links to more information page, go to the Macron Institute website, you can go there. You used to see all of Macron's microscope papers. They're gone, but the one peer-reviewed one is still there. Okay, and it's freely accessible or just list? It's accessible, yep. Okay. You all just right. go to the Macron page. Yeah, because the, the, uh, the Macroni guy that challenged me on Macron's work um, is what we call him. <laughs> I call him a Macroni. Okay. <laughs> but, right. but yeah, look, he, he, you know, voiced his claims legitimately. I published his email along with my response. I think I gave you a link to that. You did, yeah. And if I didn't, it's uh, in an upcoming paper that I've written about one event regarding Walter McCrone that I participated in. And that'll come out in our next update at the end of November, beginning of December. And I'll give you the title. It's called Into the Lion's Den. And the reason I call it that is uh, I was, uh, Ray Rogers was supposed to speak to the American Chemical Society, but he was too sick. He couldn't travel. So he gave them my name and, and contact info and told me, he says, oh, you, you, you need to go do this. And I said, but Ray, I have a Bachelor of Arts degree in photography, and you're telling me to go into a room full of PhD chemists? And he said, yes. <laughs> and that was it. So you'll read that article, and you'll see that um, I, I went into, Joe, Joe Marino mentioned it in passing in one of his recent uh, papers on uh, Macron, but uh, absolutely, <laughs> you'll, you'll read that, and you'll find out a little bit more about Macron. I'll just say for the audience. So I mentioned that story that Barry told me and I, I butcher it. I'm a horrible storyteller. I don't have Barry's gift there. So yeah, definitely check when that paper comes out, I'll link to it on this blog. Yeah, and well, check well um, you can understand the term into the lion's den because honest to God, I 
I, you know, I don't get nervous when I do these things because I'm telling something that I participated in. I don't need notes. Today, of course, this was more of a lecture kind of a thing, so it's a little different. But, you know, to stand in front of a room full of chemists, to challenge all the conclusions of Walter McCrone, he had passed away earlier that year, and they had awarded him their highest honor for debunking the shroud. Now I'm coming in, <laughs> and I'm going to tell these chemists he was wrong. So uh, into the lion's den. I'm going to start calling you Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, all right. All right, cool. So, so another Macrony uh, question here for you. Um, so, so I noticed you mentioned, um, and I've mentioned several times, uh, you know, Walter Macron never saw the, the Shroud of Turin. And I found on, on their website, though, they'll say, no, that's not true. He was there in 1978, not a part not, of the Not in the room with the Shroud. Okay. He's, he's it was there. on public display. He saw it on public display. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. he never he never was in the room with the shroud. And I know because I documented every human being that was in and out of that room in that five days and nights. Walter McCrone was never in the room with the shroud. And in his book, he mentions that he and his wife, Lucy, left Turin on the day that Stirp started their investigation. Right. So that's in his book. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean. Sure. He saw the shroud like millions of other people did behind a couple of inches of bulletproof glass at it at, uh, I don't know, four meters away. Uh, but that's not the same thing as being in the room with it, not having a couple of inches of bulletproof glass in the way and being able to physically, let, let's face it, every one of the STIRP team members, including me, left our DNA on the cloth. What did we know about DNA in 1978? We're shedding epithelial cells constantly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always say, well, when people say, oh, why don't they do a DNA analysis? I said, well, you know, I happen to be a long-haired Jewish guy myself, and my DNA is all over the cloth, and thousands of other people. And, of course, back in, the, uh, in 2002, when the restoration of the shroud was accomplished, uh, the two women who did the physical restoration, removing the patches, scraping, and, uh, scraping away the charred areas and vacuuming it, removing the backing sheet, sewing a new backing sheet on, they physically handled every square centimeter of that cloth. No gloves, no hairnet, no mask, nothing. Not no to mention the poor Claire nuns. Yeah, the poor Claire nuns. But, but because they spent 32 days handling every square inch of it, if we did a DNA test of the man of the shroud today, we'd find he's a Swiss woman. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, cool. Um, all right, well, one thing, one thing I wanted to mention, um, and maybe I, maybe I missed it. I was paying attention to the various features you used to kind of disqualify the certain theories. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was superficiality, body image superficiality. And yeah. um, so in the first place, uh, pro-shroud people have said there are three levels, right? It, it's superficial on a macro level. It's not on the reverse side of the plot. It's also at the thread level, only in the top two to three fibrils. Um, and then finally, at the fibril level, it's only on the primary cell. Yeah, surface. Surface yeah. there. Um, yeah, which, which would be pretty difficult to do if you applied any kind of liquid. It's going to, by capillary, it's going to soak in. It's going to, it's going to permeate into the cloth. We don't see any of that, except perhaps in the blood and water stains. Gotcha. So you, you just kind of answered my question because I was about to say, so certain shroud skeptics like Dan Porter or Colin Berry have been going around saying, oh, we can reproduce 
superficiality, um, or they try to deny the fiber level superficial superficiality altogether. So just wanted to get your take on, on that. Look, so. you know, um, there are skeptics who are well-meaning and in their hearts, they truly believe what they believe. And there are skeptics, I think, who are skeptics because it's more fashionable and attracts more attention than just going along with the science that says it's authentic. And let's face it, today, if you step up and you start challenging some of the science, you're going to get more attention than the science gets. I think the radiocarbon dating is a pretty good example of that. If they had come back and said the shroud's authentic, we wouldn't even be talking about it anymore. Yeah. But saying the shroud is a fake, boom, international headlines never stopped. Still like, going on. I like what you told me one time, Barry, where you said that if... Uh, if Sturp had declared the shroud a fake, you're convinced Macron would have said it was legit. I th Look, you know, I had a conversation with Walter about a year before he passed away. And I respected the man. I mean, he truly is, was, you know, very good at what he did. Um, but he was also in a, in a really bad position. Uh, his organization, Macron Research Institute, primarily earned their living by testifying in courtrooms as experts. Now, uh, he'd made claims about the Vinland map. I'm not sure where that fell in the end, but then he made claims about the shroud. And if he were wrong and he admitted he was wrong, what impact might that have had on his business? Uh, I think because in that last conversation, he told me, he said, you know, that, that shroud business is driving me up a wall, meaning it had frustrated him. And I, I sensed that he really wished that he could say something otherwise, but he was already painted into a corner that, of his own making. He could never come out and say he was wrong about it because it would have had serious impact perhaps on his business and the 40 some employees that he has. So I could understand him being frustrated. And I swear to you, I said, perhaps Walter, you should step back from the brink. And that's what I told him. And that was the last conversation I had with Walter McCrone. And look, he was certainly superb in many areas, but Walter was really good with the media. His, one of his really good friends was Bill Curtis, who's a, a well-known, I think he was an NBC or CBS anchor in Chicago, uh, has gone on to make documentaries on the A&E Network, did one on Walter McCrone and the Shroud, actually, uh, favoring Walter's point of view. So Walter knew how to use the media very well. So remember what I said earlier, Sturp, not so much. So Walter was very careful about how he presented this information and made himself like, I am the sole voice of reason and all these wacko guys from Los Alamos and Sandia Labs are wrong and I'm right. Well, you know, that's pretty hard to support when you look at the peer reviewed evidence. And so I always tell people, don't take my word for it. Don't believe any of us. Go look at the data and make up your own mind. Want to know something really juicy that I had uh, stumbled across and I'd never heard it before. Be careful, you're on TV. Yes. <laughs> and it was just, I, I can't resist not sharing this. I, if I remember correctly, it was in his peer-reviewed paper at the bottom, like where the footnotes are, it talks about um, how it was, it was not long after he did his, uh, his investigation into the sticky tapes. And because of that huge disaster of his not noticing vermilion, 
because he didn't notice it anywhere on the shroud. And um, which is a but, pigment for those who don't know. Right, right, right. And and oddly enough, he um, it was the uh, the team that does the fancier, not just the microscopy, but the, uh, the scanning electron microscopy and, and that more sophisticated type of examination. They were the ones that found Vermilion, and he was so embarrassed that he did not find it. And um, and what's so interesting is his huge. I mean, he had so many blunders. But um, what's interesting is that at the bottom of that paper, it talks about how he then stopped working at Macron associates and then basically he retired and went off to teaching because he was now a liability he was a laughing stock that here this this huge widely acclaimed famous microscopist he was so famous at debunking paintings did not detect vermilion paint which is i have done a test where i i took some of my own blood, uh, do artwork. And even with my synthetic vermilion paint, I, I dabbed some vermilion paint on some linen and I put it next to fresh blood. It's practically indistinguishable. It's right. that on target. So that should have been the very first colored paint that Macron should have looked for that and iron oxide, which could be a reddish orange, yeah. but he should have been completely targeting those cases. And the fact that he did not see vermilion in all of these thousands and thousands of fibers that he was claiming he was looking with such close detail at, the fact that he didn't see any and that of course, when the vermilion was spotted, it was only on tape, sticky tape, that's labeled 3CB on one tape. And so from seeing vermilion on one tape, which of course the STERP team, Heller and Adler, did detect that one piece, uh, one vermilion crystal that had a tiny chip at the very edge, and then they saw the remnants of that tiny chip in a little track area right near where they found the vermilion crystal. And that's fully explainable by those, sh the painted copies of the shroud yeah. that you right. talk about. Yeah, I, sh I actually the, showed you the one that was the fact. most recently discovered. Yes, yes. And, and actually the painted, and we know for a fact that the painted copy of a shroud that has been documented, um, the one I forget that it's the one that is in Sicily. It, it's the shroud of Monte Chiaro or something like that. Yeah. It, but it's in Sicily. That I, one, I only know about one of them. Uh, okay, but that one does in fact have vermilion paint as the blood stains. So it may have been that one, or or some of the other copies sure. may have also had vermilion on them. But the interesting thing is, is that because that was such a huge blunder that Macron did not spot this vermilion yet is claiming that it's all over the place. He well, had to step down from his own company because he was a disaster. He, I mean, what a shame. I mean, 
he oh. it's an embarrassment and so I he think. had to step down and and they also changed the name of the company after now i don't know at what point but probably no, after I, he left that, that goes yeah that's beyond my, i i don't know about that mm-hmm. I, I i will say this remember i i mentioned that article that i've written um on the podium with me was dr david stoney who became the director of the macron research institute after walter's mm-hmm. death that's why I call it into the lions, Dan, because right. definitely one of the lions. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, right. look, uh, Macron's work uh, in many aspects, I, I believe his book on microscopy is still a definitive piece of work. So I don't want to take that away from Walter Macron. It's garbage. Uh, it's not that. Well, I, I'm not qualified to have that opinion, but uh, the work that he's done with microscopy throughout the years, I think, has has uh, been very credible. Uh, it's I just think that most of that work was done on things that are far more obscure than the Shroud of Turin that weren't going to generate much publicity. The Shroud, on the other hand, and look, we even have it today. There are certain skeptics who make a lot of noise uh, in their skepticism because they get more attention that way. And so, you know, that's human nature. I've been doing this long enough not to be bothered by that. And I, I don't try and challenge every skeptic or I'd be tilting at windmills for the rest of my life. I'll tell you something. Just like wrap up in a couple minutes because I, I have one last question. I want to make sure everyone gets a chance. Sure. Yeah, I was just going to mention, uh, I did buy Macron's highly acclaimed book of the Particle Atlas that, you know, said to be just so phenomenal. Let me tell you how phenomenal this book is. First of all, when they have, um, in the original one, it they did part one and part two, and part two has many subsections, but originally it was part one, and I've got part one. Um, a lot of the, the photographs, for example, when you look at... Um, pictures of iron oxide and when you look at uh picture well they don't have a picture of blood in that one but in one of the subsequent books they have pictures of blood yet it look it's not going to look right because a lot of their um like with gelatin which there's the issue he claims that there's gelatin binder for the paint yeah n- none was ever found with yeah spectrometry and when you pictures of gelatin in his particle atlas they're all round because they sprayed it on so in, in a lot of the things in the particle atlas don't look as they would normally appear in nature or in a normal way because they used some sort of an aerosol thing to spray the so, I mean, that's yeah. kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's all beyond me, Teddy. I've never seen the book. I I do know that it has been praised by, uh, you know, by people in the field, and that, that. But that that's not. I'm not so concerned about that as I am about the claims that he made that mm-hmm. I I think have been challenged by the peer-reviewed science. All right. Perfect. Okay. Cool. So I'm just going to jump in. This will be my last question, and then I'll turn it to Daniel to ask his follow-up questions, and then Teddy, you're going to have the, the last bit. So I know you've got a lot. So. The last laugh. Last laugh. there, Because um, this is your, yeah, I mean, Walter Macron, you've been working on that for months and stuff, right? Yeah. So, okay, so so Barry, I, I noticed you mentioned uh, several times in your presentation that the blood was deposited onto the cloth first, and then the body images were formed, and it's 
Now, there have been some like Kelly Kyrus have kind of questioned that. Yeah. Um, so do you, yeah, are, you're familiar with these challenges sure. and why don't, why do you dismiss Ke them or don't think they're Ke right? Kelly Kyrus is one of, on, on Stara's board of directors. So uh, I have re great respect for Kelly's point of view. And, and I even talked about the fact that he didn't gr agree with Adler's conclusions and didn't find the same thing. And I think what this points out to is, is the fact that 45 years later, with the advancements in technology, claims that were made and challenged based on the STIRP data, look, we went there to answer one question. We came back with a massive amount of data and a thousand new questions. Our goal was to have a STIRP 2, which was planned and worked up and a test plan was made. It was approved by Cardinal Ratzinger, who eventually became you know, Pope. Um, but he sent it on to John Paul II, and then the Pontifical Scientific Academy stepped in and sort of squashed that. Uh, matter of fact, Joe Marino's published some material about that himself. So, um, so the, the way I see it, I'm sorry, lost my train of thought. What can I say? It happens. So what happens when you get old? Do you think there's so? Do you think there's any merit then to someone? Well, look, it, my point simply, yeah. Okay, I'm back. Uh, it would be great to be able to not only answer some of the questions that remain open, but also some of the thousand new questions that came up based on the data we collected. Uh, STERP wasn't finished. STERP had only just begun, but circumstance politics and God only knows what else stepped in and kept us from ever fulfilling that promise of going back to answer some of these questions more definitively. Because remember, we weren't going there to study the blood necessarily. We were there to study the image. That's why we had two guys from the Jet Propulsion Lab. Don Lynn was head of imaging on Voyager and Viking and Mariner and Galileo projects. Don Devan, the guy who brought me on board, was an imaging scientist. So, uh, and Vern Miller and Ernie Brooks and Sam Pellicori and Mark Evans, all imaging people. So the bulk of the guys were there that were there were involved with imaging. So that was our focus. There are all these other things. Why didn't we have a textile expert with us? Well, we had one on the team. He didn't come to Turin with us. Uh, he was from the LA Museum. Um, so could we have done things differently? Could we have done them better? Could we have uh, gotten more data? Could we have been more conclusive? Perhaps hindsight, you know, going back and looking back 45 years ago, oh, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? Sure, that's easy to say, but you have no idea that of the obstacles that STIRP had to overcome on an hour by hour, not, not just daily, but hourly basis from the beginning to the end of this project that we had to overcome on at every step of the way. So this wasn't something that, oh, yeah, well, here's the, the way it's done. You just go and you do it. We couldn't do that. We had to sort of carve new ground here. And so, yeah, we could have done certain things better. We could have done certain things differently. And certainly today with the knowledge based on that data and the technology advancements that we've had up until now, uh, we could go back and probably answer some of these questions more definitively. But right now, right now, the prime sources are the best sources. And right now, I in this presentation I made today, I'm using those as the basis for what I said today.
Now, could some of that prove to be wrong? Yeah, I even said that in a few of the areas that, hey, maybe, you know, new data will show something differently. Rogers used to yell at me, follow the data. Adler used to say, follow the data and do an experiment. I mean, these guys were, drove me crazy, but they taught me empiricism. They didn't, uh, I mean, Rogers, if, if you did, I mean, remember, Rogers called Joe Marino and Sue Benford the lunatic fringe. That's not a very polite thing to say about somebody, but that's how he was. He, I, when we were in Turin, I nicknamed Ray the gunfighter while we were in Turin. So, you know, uh, these are all human beings. They're, they all have their own personal beliefs and emotions. And Rogers and all the guys from Los Alamos and Sandy and JPL, the most empirical bunch of guys I've ever worked with. And I spent many years at Cedar sinai Medical Center in the research area, um, you know, working with physicists and chemists and medical doctors and forensic guys. And nobody was ever more empirical than the guys from Los Alamos and Sandia Labs, awesome. ever. Awesome. All right, cool. Thank you. So, yeah, that does it for my, uh, my pre prepared list of questions there. So, Daniel, I, I want to turn it over to you uh, if you have a few follow-up or probe, probing questions for Mary. Yeah. Um, well, one question is just more for folks like me who are laymen, who don't have a scientific background, that are trying to sort of uh, investigate some of the data and looking at not just the primary, but also some of the secondary literature. Yeah. Because there's a lot of discussion there. So like, I know, know you've talked a lot about Garlis uh, Skelly and then some of the responses by... Um, uh, some other researchers. I'm curious, um, given that the Shroud is such a diverse field of different disciplines and subdisciplines, um, if there was any sort of study habits you would recommend to sort of uh, try and guard against this? Because uh, one thing that I see very constantly is something from like um, Paulo de Lazaro when he's sort of commenting on certain folks is that uh, they do really good work when they stay in the field, but as soon as they start stepping out of it, then they start uh, having to rely on other sources and they aren't qualified to evaluate them. Look, today, first of all, everybody has a camera with a computer hooked to it in their pocket, okay? So now everybody's an imaging expert. Everybody's a shroud expert. I wanna point out, Paolo DeLazaro and I are dear friends. He's also the vice president of the Turin Centro. The first time someone from outside of Turin has ever held that position, which is pretty amazing. And of course, he discolored the surface of a linen fiber uh, using an eczema laser, which is what we were working with at Cedar sinai Medical Center. Um, but he himself said, look, we didn't make an image. All we did was discolor the surface of a fiber. And when we looked at that, I looked at some of his photomicroscopy and it damaged the primary cell wall. Yet the image fibers on the shroud don't show a damaged primary cell wall. So what does that tell us? It's one nice theory. And, and he admits, look, we didn't make an image. All we did was discolor a fiber. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful. Nowadays, we have all kinds of theoretical things that are being proposed that are so far beyond science that they, they, you can't even create an experiment to test those theories. So it brings me back to the whole issue of faith versus science, that if you want the science, you got to stay within the scientific method.
Mm-hmm. If you want to look at it from a position of faith, which a billion or so people do, then who cares what the science says? Believe what you want to believe. But if you want the science to support the faith, then we have to look at things like bursts of radiation and bursts of light out of a body and say, we can't duplicate that. We can't create an experiment to test mm-hmm. that. So we can't call it science. That's purely speculative. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're doing theoretical stuff, I mean, even... Uh, I don't want to mention names, but even one or two of the folks that do that have said it in their own papers. This is purely theoretical. Mm-hmm. So when you're dealing with something purely theoretical, okay, that's fine. You can put that in a certain place. But when you look at the data collected from the surface of that piece of cloth, that's a whole different ballgame. And so, you know, and, and sadly, people buy into the, anytime somebody who's a pro shroud in their heart person hears something that's pro shroud whether it's scientifically valid or not that they jump on it and they start preaching that even though there's no science to back it up and so you know my feeling is this if you if you have good faith and your faith is strong who cares what the science says but if you're looking for the science to support your faith there are certain places science can never go yeah i i like what you sort of said uh there um I kind of want to get you to comment on this sort of uh, thought that's been, I've sort of developed in this, um, the idea between uh, sort of building models and then testable models that can actually uh, yield out scientifically uh, meaningful statements and stuff like that. I think um, that was one of the comments that I think the late Dr. Raymond Schneider sort of said, it's like, there's a big difference uh, between like certain folks that are just throwing out suggestions and then folks that are actually trying to carve up uh, models, even though they might be incredibly ad hoc and in totality, maybe not um, testable, but if they can make predictions, then they could sort of have some uh, leeway. I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I, I'm actually, I'm just glad you mentioned Ray Schneider. May he rest in peace, another one who's gone. Uh, Ray and I were good friends. Um, we spoke a lot. He is the only other Shroud scholar in my recollection that understood the significance of the banding that runs through the shroud. And he and I discussed it. He said, you know, nobody's ever done the study to determine why certain bands took up the image darker and the adjacent band lighter. Why? And you can see that by the narrowness of the face. But if you look closely in that dark band next to the face and you lighten it up by 15%, there's the rest of the faces there. So it's not missing. The face isn't too narrow as some... uh, skeptics have claimed it's just that when you make that high contrast negative view some of that gets pushed down into the black you don't see it anymore makes the face look too narrow that banding has something to do with the image formation mechanism no one has done any studies of that and if i were to advise the next group of researchers as to what to study on the shroud go figure out what the differences are between those bands because that might be a clue to the image formation mechanism I don't know if I answered your question. No, no, it's very helpful. Uh, just because uh, I, I know in my study, like one of the frustrations was um, just <coughs> trying to make uh, sort of uh, keep a standard and for how to weigh evidence, and that's very difficult when you're using multiple fields. So, like the experimental standards that are going to be used by applied physicists and applied chemists aren't going to apply to like uh, his, um, historians. It's not going to apply. Or- or even theoretical chemists. Yeah. 
yeah or and physicists. Uh, yeah and my mind like i come from more of a uh, philosophical like um metaphysical background so we're allowed to sort of drop all sorts of models i was just gonna say all bets are off there you can yeah you can go any direction you want it, to you start you start with coherence and then nobody has any idea how to well it's very hard to sort of argue for the actuality from there um, so, uh, I'm curious, uh, I think I read in an old interview of yours, um, that you were, uh, around the early two thousands that you were a little frustrated by the lack of cooperation amongst, uh, researchers. I'm curious in, uh, the couple decades since, has there been a change in this sort of atmosphere? Yeah, actually, it's a great question. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was looking through some of my earlier writings and, uh, there's a couple of papers I wrote in the first couple of years of the website, the, the role of the internet in the future of shroud research, and then the role of the internet in current shroud research. Uh, and I went back and read those because I was sort of proposing what the internet might allow in the future. And it turns out that everything I predicted occurred because of shroud.com. So I wound up making it my own self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess. But uh, look, it's the kind of subject, it's unlike any other archaeological object, there's an emotional side to the study of the shroud that really doesn't exist on just about anything else. Um, you know, we talk about King Tut. The only people who got emotional about King Tut might be some Egyptians who were distant relatives, perhaps. We all went and saw that, and it was beautiful and spectacular and all that. But there was no emotional attachment to that the way there is to the shroud. And that's something that I've never lost sight of right from the beginning that this is also a symbol of faith to over a billion people. And so I've always had the respect for that, remembering I'm Jewish, so I, I didn't have a, a Christian bias because I'm not a Christian. And so from my point of view, uh, I was raised to have respect. I, mean, I was raised in a half Jewish, half Italian neighborhood, so it was Catholics and Jews. And we were taught that's a priest, that's a nun, you treat them the same way you would treat the rabbi. So we never had any animus or any problems along those lines. And I was taught to respect people's faith, other people's faith, even if it was different from mine. I kind of wish other people would feel the same way about Jewish people sometimes, but that's not the case always. But anyway, I think that in the end, people have to make up their own mind about this. This is not something that you, can, you or I can dictate to someone. We have to say, look, here's the evidence. This is what I believe based on my involvement and my access to the science. This has led me to this conclusion. But here's all the evidence. That was the purpose of Shroud.com, not just to preserve Sterp's work, but to give it to everybody. Because back in the days when I first built that website in the 90s, uh, if you wanted to read a peer-reviewed journal, you had to go to a research library at a university somewhere. Of course, that's all changed. The internet changed that. And now, of course, now we have all kinds of journals where you pay to play journals where and some work you don't even have to pay to academia. You can just post your stuff on academia. Um, and that's why on shroud.com a couple of years ago, we stopped publishing articles that were un previously unpublished because people, even though I had a committee of 13 who evaluated each paper to see if we should uh, put it online or not, half the time, the topics of those papers, there was nobody in my committee of 13 qualified to even judge that. And people were thinking if it's on trial.com, it must be peer reviewed. So we stopped publishing unpublished stuff. I always tell people, publish it, put it in a journal somewhere, send us the link. It's much more powerful if I can make a link to a credible journal than to 
no offense, even to academia.edu, which is no review at all. And we've made that clear that, you know, authors can take a journal article, usually after a year or so, the journal lets you put it elsewhere and they can put it on academia. But many of the papers that are up there are just papers that are just published. Uh, Joe Marino's papers, Bob Rucker's papers, pa papers of that nature. So uh, the way I see it, people just have to study what's there and come, come to their own conclusion. And that way, I don't feel like I'm pushing somebody in, in a direction where I, I shouldn't go myself. Yeah. I just want to uh, say thank you so much for the work they've done on shroud.com because unlike um, a lot of other fields that I've sort of looked at, there's not a peer, uh, like a journal of shroud studies or a peer reviewed um, uh, version of just academic journals uh, dealing specifically with syndonology and stuff like that. So to find uh, these sort of things, you have to know uh, where they're being published and sort of read a lot of different journals. So chemistry journals, physics journals, uh, theology journals, all these sort of, uh, and they're all asking different questions. So I think what you've done with the site over the last um, couple of decades has been a great uh, resource. And it's no, definitely been huge in my development as just a, just as a person uh, in researching. That's about the highest compliment you could pay me because, uh, you know, the whole idea was don't take my word for it. Here's the same evidence that convinced me, a non-Christian, that this has got to be the real deal. And here's the evidence. You study it and come to your own conclusions. And if you decide differently than I do, fine. I'm not keeping score. It's not a competition. And so when, you know, when I get, uh, and I, you know, I get attacked from time to time by people, I just ignore it. They're not going to go away. Yeah, why do why do the skeptics do what they do? Because if they accept that the shroud might be authentic, it completely changes their whole worldview and everything they've done to that moment in time. Nobody's going to do that. It just uh, one last comment. It's very similar to like my interaction with Jesus mythicists. It's not so much that uh, if uh, they allow for historical Jesus that they have to that it's going to automatically and just intellectually put them at the kneel, kneel to the cross. It's right. that now they have to allow for the possibility and do a lot more hard work trying to figure yeah. out exactly. So it's much easier to just keep that point of view yeah. and not have to change anything. Yeah, human beings don't like change. We just like to keep it in the same groove all the time. And, you know, I understand that. I've probably been guilty of that like everybody else. But when it comes to the shroud, my attitude is, look, believe what you want to believe. And I, I, I share a true little story with you. God, I, I was lecturing up in Canada and a guy came up to me after one of my lectures. He said, Mr. Schwartz, that was really a great lecture. And then he leaned in and he said, but you'll never convince me. And I looked at him and I said, what makes you think I even care what you believe? That's between you and God. Take it up with him. And that was my answer. And he smiled and walked away. So it's like, hey, I don't care. You don't have to accept it. That's not my place. Talk to your priest. He'll, he might have a different argument than I do. But from my point of view, here's the evidence you decide. That's it. I'll, I'll just say it's interesting that Barry actually met Darren Luke from Skeptics and Seekers. So uh, <laughs> who, who was that? Oh, uh, you, you wouldn't know. There's this uh, hardcore entrenched skeptic named Darren Luke that the three of us are familiar with when I was um, the co-host. And yeah, he would he was exactly the type that you were just mentioning. So it was just yeah. an inside joke there, but. Oh yeah, I said, okay, well now I get it, I get it. Yeah, I just, I mean, I thought it was funny because the guy was, he got so serious when he leaned in the way he did. 
And I looked at him. I said, I don't, I don't care. I don't care what you believe. Yeah. It's, it's There's the, no scorecard here. As, as Teddy says, it's the invincible ignorance fallacy that they like to commit there. So. Well, look, it's, and I've said this to Joe Marino, who, who feels compelled always to want to challenge these guys. Say, look, Joe, you're tilting at windmills. They're not going to ever go away. They'll, they'll always be skeptics. And you just talked about a young guy, perhaps, is, is the next generation of Joe Nichols or other well-known skeptics. They have a place. Look, if it weren't for Walter McCrone, I'm not sure Sterp would have been as careful as they were. If it, you know, if it weren't for some of these skeptics like Joe Nickel, would we have tested the uh, scorch theory? Maybe not, because that was something before Sterp ever went to Turin. He was promote, promoting that idea. So yeah, you know what, Heller and Adler, in in reading Heller's book, it is so obvious because you get this wonderful backstory on them they they have just this intense curiosity about everything and i i share that same sort of curiosity like they do and but i mean of course i have not done what they do but i mean they for example with when macron uh, or no when they when stirp discovered that one vermilion crystal Heller's book talks about how they then retested all of the fibers microchemically. Just to be in case sure. they had missed it. Did we miss? And they were these wonderfully compulsive scientists. And I that's what I just treasure about them. And they retested all of it just to be sure. Like, did we miss something? And they didn't. And so out of all those thousands of fibers, they weren't finding vermilion. It was that one crystal, which obviously flaked off of one of the paintings that was pressed to the genuine shroud for sanctification purposes. You, you know what they call that, Teddy? It's called science. Yes. The repeatability, and it, but, but you have slipshod scientists, and you have Heller and Adler, and they, they're, they, they were the real deal, and they were obsessive and compulsive, and that's what you want in a scientist. Yeah, well, not just Heller and Adler, but some of those guys from Los Alamos and Sandia. Sure, I'm sure, but, but it's like in in Heller's book because. He focuses so in depth on what he and Adler did. It's like you just you get all these beautiful fine details on yeah. it. It's 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 a joy to read, and I just read it and reread it. And it's well, amazing. Re remembering who the guys were that were on that team, I've always said, thank God that they were as crazy, meticulous, compulsive mm -hmm. as they Absolutely. were, because if they got it wrong, billions of people could die. Right with bombs, no. the, the the weapons that they, uh, that, they were all explosives and weapons labs. Yeah, I mean these Rogers are... was a thermochemist. That's yep. explosive. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, cool. So I'm just going to jump in. I have one last question, then Teddy, it's it's going to be all yours for the remainder of the show. So, um, so so Barra, one thing that I wanted to ask you, very general question. It's something I, I asked you about in private. Um, so I, I've been very respectful of you know, not trying to evangelize you or trying to get you to believe in miracles. You've been, you've been clear on your stance. You're the science guy. You don't yeah. for that. But the thing that I wanted to ask you, something that I'm working on, it, I think there might be a way to bridge that with intelligent design theory. And 
I know that you're not, you don't know about that debate, but it's, it's I, I'm familiar with what it is, but I haven't done any in-depth okay. studies of it. Okay, so, so let me just say this, uh, just assume I'm correct for the sake of argument. You have a set of scientific <laughs> yeah. criteria. No, no, well, I mean, in what I'm saying here, because I wanna see how you'd react. We have a set of scientific criteria called specified complexity that can allow us to identify intelligent design. Let's, let's pretend that's correct and I can do the science to prove it. Um, now you stated, look, we have proof that no medieval human artist could have created these images. If I could do that, would you maybe be open to considering maybe God did make these images just on the oh, Look, perfectly good question. Um, and I don't have any, look, I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. Belief in God is something that's inherent in my, my body too, you know, so I don't have any doubts about that. Um, I might have when I was a younger man, but I certainly don't now. And I can look out at the universe and, you know, the view that I have here and say, look what God created. So I don't have a problem with that at all. And just for the record, I get evangelized so often that I just smile when it happens because, because it happens all the time. And at first, when I first got involved publicly, you know, uh, 25, 30 years ago, um, I was a little put off by all that. But then I came to understand that that's an expression of love. That's somebody wishing that I feel in my heart what they obviously feel in their heart. And so I'm not offended by being evangelized. And as far as intelligent design goes, although I have put no emphasis or time into studying it, um, I don't have doubts that God, at least in, in part, created this universe. And, uh, in, and as I said before, gave us that capacity to learn and study and analyze and, and try and understand the universe that's around us. So, so I don't have any difficulties with the concept of intelligent design. Um, but I also think that in, in recent years, it's sort of been you become a, sort of an attack tool. And, and, and that's on both sides of the arguments, by the way. And, and so I don't want to get in the middle of all, all that stuff. And I always say, look, believe what you want to believe. Here's, here's the scientific evidence that's convinced me. Take it or leave it. And, and so I try not to involve myself in theological issues. Look, I've been fortunate to know great theologians, you know, I can, I can send people to certain priests or uh, uh, historians or scholars and say, look, that's a question far beyond my skill set. Go talk to this person or this father or something like that. So I'm, I'm careful not to step over the boundaries because the minute I do that, then I'm going to become guilty of some of the things I've accused others of doing, which is stepping outside my field of expertise to postulate. I don't do that. Notice that all of the presentation I made today was mostly 99.9% .9 about the image, which is within my field of expertise. Gotcha. Perfect. Cool. Yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. So thanks. Sure. No, no. Look, I mean, I'm, Dale, I'm I was, familiar with it. Dale, I was just going to say, uh, go stick with uh, a Bayesian account. That might be a little bit, that's something that I haven't seen done on the shroud. I want to see. Um, well, Trist, Tristan Cassie Bianca is used. A little, a little bit, but he's still doing it in terms of best explanation uh, when he's uh, using like Hona's sort of methodology and yeah. stuff like that. Someone needs to do just a pure Bayesian account. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I've heard of it. I don't know much about it. It's, it, yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm I'm not into epistemology, so I can't go go through it. But I I, I stick to the uh, metaphysics sort of questions. But yeah, uh, I'm, like I say, I, I I'm I'm a guy who needs it tangible in front of me. 
remember, I'm a photographer. I have to capture what's in front of my camera. And if it isn't there, it isn't there. Of course, now we have Photoshop, which changed all that. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. So with that said, it's now the time of the hour. I'm going to turn it to Teddy to uh, ask her probing questions and stuff like that. Um, and I know you've got a lot to, to say. You've got great information. I and would just say, and y'all feel free to jump in. Uh, you know, it's not yeah, just and me. just just Teddy. One thing: when you're doing it, try to remember the audience. Like, stick to like one or two points, and then let Barry respond. Don't go on like sure. Okay, cool. Sure. Um, one one of the things is regarding expertise. Uh, now, I of course do value having an expert in a certain area, you know, consult to consult regarding whatever it is that's in that area, if I'm looking into. But one of the things that I've noticed is that sometimes amateurs that are intelligent and are capable of self-study can through a hyper focus of their studying, sometimes know things that are a little bit more <laughs> than, than the experts that I've seen. For example, doctors. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that they, that they know things, but they might have a, a perspective on things that somebody else might not have. So it's not a question of whether they know or don't know, but they might have a way of looking at something that uh, brings out a different point of view. So look, there've been many great discoveries made by non-scientists, non-experts. Best example, Joe Marino and Sue Benford, mm -hmm. okay? So I would never deny the possibility, but when someone proclaims themselves an expert, which we have constantly in the shroud world now. Um, I mean, I, I see articles that come across uh, from Google, uh, shroud expert to give a talk, somebody I've never even heard of, mm -hmm. somebody who's never published anything on the shroud. How does one become a shroud expert without any knowledge of the shroud world, uh, knowing about them or having at least published something that at least pro uh, projects some information to say, oh, that's a new perspective. We haven't seen that before. Right, so, right. So I don't certainly don't deny the possibility that non-experts can move the ball forward too. I, I agree with that. My objection are to people who claim themselves as experts that have no right, right. to base that on. Right, right. So there's a there's a difference. I, I somebody like you, who's a lawyer, used to do digging deep into research. Uh, you have that skill set that you've developed over the years that teaches you how to find evidence, to find information that may be beneficial to your client or your case. And that gives you a, a, an advantage over the average person out there. So could you, in that kind of digging, find something that others might have missed? Sure, absolutely. And it's, and it's just, it's just um, I mean, you don't have to be a lawyer. Sometimes it's just a math, because well, every field, is so broad it's like with law they call it the practice of law because no one lawyer can know everything yeah. well, look joe marino is a former benedictine monk okay and uh left the order and married sue benford who was a nurse so neither of them scientists uh joe 
certainly on the opposite end of that spectrum. And yet they've made some important uh, advances. And not only that, look at how prolific Joe is now in collecting data and putting it all together. I mean, you know, I think his role as a priest is important, but his role as a guy who worked in the university library for 35 years is even more so. So one has to kind of evaluate what the claims are based on right. who that person is and where is that information coming from? It is, is it somebody who, who read somebody else's book and all of a sudden claims to be an expert? Yeah. Or is it somebody who's dug in, who's done the research? Mm -hmm. This is why I have respect for guys like Nicholas Allen. He didn't just... Uh, postulate the way uh, uh, other skeptics have. He went out and he went through a whole lot of trouble to create an image. Mm -hmm. I give him great respect for that because he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk and I respect that. And although I disagree with his conclusions, I think his methodology was superb. He did exactly what he said he was gonna do and he did mm -hmm. it quite well. It's just the results show that that's not what's on the shroud, that's all. Right. And it's just, and what I'm talking about is just when individuals hyper-focus on a particular question to find an answer, many times an expert's expertise isn't narrowed down to a particular pinpointed question. And so mm -hmm. even though you're talking to well, an, a general expert, like a, a medical professional or a chemist, Look, they uh, may not have studied this particular issue, you know, as much as, you if know. You're, if you're talking about medical specialists, we have, I don't know, an infinite number of specialties within the medical field. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't go to my podiatrist for my eyes, right. okay? Uh, nor do I go to my eye doctor for my feet. So, you know, I mean, so the specializations within various disciplines are, are, are very important. And the only thing I object to is somebody who pops out of nowhere, uh, comes from a background that is not relevant to any of these things and proclaims himself an expert. I agree. Yeah. yeah that, then I say, well, what qualifies that person? Right, right. I don't call myself an expert, although that's what people call me. My answer is, of course, 27 years of the editor of Shroud.com and dealing with pretty much every Shroud scholar in the world. Um, if you don't learn something after that, I should go be a plumber or something. No offense to any plumbers, by the way. They make a lot more money than photographers. So, you know. Uh, Barry, uh, I, was, I, uh, I was curious if you could talk about, like, are there any uh, skeptics that you've really benefited from their interaction with? Because I know just personally, I remember reading uh, a couple of Hugh, uh, papers by Hugh Ferry, and that really got me to just sort of hone in on the data that I was actually uh, studying. Um, so I found that a very productive sort of discussion that I was having with myself reading this to sort of move the uh, dialogue for, further. Hugh and I are friends. I like Hugh. He and I, you know, when we were doing the uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim event in uh, the Jasa Salana in England five years in a row, Hugh was there. He and I sat and debated and argued about things, but respectfully. Um, he's a brilliant guy. Um, I disagree with him on almost everything. Um, but I respect his points of view, and he makes very strong arguments in some of his cases. So, uh, you know, uh, if Hugh's listening, uh, how's it going, Hugh? <laughs> but, but, you know, look, disagreement is part of the scientific method, okay? 
The whole reason we publish our data and we publish our conclusions and we put them out there for everybody is so somebody can look at it and go, I disagree with that. And they can make an experiment that they can challenge the work. That's how science advances. So disagreement is essential in the scientific method. So I don't have any problems with somebody like Hugh Ferry because he never makes it very personal. Well, occasionally he does, but most of the time he doesn't. And as long as you're challenging the conclusions or the methodologies of a certain research and you're not attacking the person behind it, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, certain people have attacked Ray Rogers vehemently and publicly, the man's dead. And you can disagree with his conclusions, you can disagree with his methods, but the minute you start attacking him personally, you've lost me. I, I am not happy when I hear that, and I will stand up and defend him, because attacking the man personally, if unless you knew him personally, you don't have a right to do that. Well, that's just something that I really appreciate reading some of Roger's um, uh, responses and responses to Rogers from folks uh, like um, Dr. Jackson and then also uh, 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 De Lazaro when they were sort of interacting with their data. The yeah. thing I loved about all three of those authors is that it was all about the data. Yeah, and that's, you, that's what science is about. Yeah. It's and not about personality. And let's face it, most of the really top-notch scientists have personality disorders. I mean, no offense to my dear friend, may rest in peace, Al Adler, never drove a car a day in his life. Had to be driven everywhere. Yeah. Um, Albert Einstein apparently had very poor personal hygiene. I don't know. I never met him. Uh, what I'm saying is, yeah, some of these guys are a little wacky in, in, in sort of a general sense, but their focus is laser focused in their fields. And that's where they excel. So you just have to set aside the personality part of it deal with the data. And if the data is something you disagree with and disagree with the data, fine, but don't attack the man behind it because you disagree. And that's what I have been facing with. And I'm not going to mention any names, but there are a couple of people out there who've been quite nasty to, about Rogers and me, I might add. Um, and I won't go into it. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Barry, if, if you don't mind, um, just before we go back to Teddy, because she got cut off, I'm, I'm sort of curious about, so related to image formation, which is your presentation and that sort of thing. So you kind of refuted um, specific hypotheses and people that represent these theories. Those were the most popular ones of the day, basically. Yeah, so, so I wanted to put it to you though. Um, are, would you say that those refutations for the sake of the audience, those refutations would rule out all different versions of those types of theories or could someone tweak uh, something and come up with a slightly different variation? Perhaps. I, I would have to see it before I could, uh, you know, have an opinion. But right now, in general, I, I refute those four uh, techniques for image creation because the, the data shows otherwise. Gotcha. All right. those, those techniques are not supported by the data taken directly from the cloth. And I have to base it on that because that's the best data we have. If somebody can, if somebody can get new data and show that we're wrong about some of these things, I'll be the first to follow the data. That's another thing Rogers and Adler used to yell at me: follow the data, follow the data, until I couldn't hear it anymore. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. I just that's what science is about, and data can change, and new techniques can evolve that can change previous conclusions. 
And that's why science does advance. And that's why I respect Kelly Kearse's work, even though I loved Al Adler as a friend and a brother, uh, Kelly's on my board of directors and I respect his judgment. And he's right that the technology today can confirm or completely negate what Adler said, but we don't know that until we can apply that technology in a new set of tests, which I don't see happening in my lifetime. Gotcha. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I just wanted to, to put that forward for the sake of the sure. audience. I see that Teddy is, someone's praying right now, so that's why she's off. Um, all right, well. I see her face. Is she not there? Uh, she is, but she can't. Uh, somebody's praying in the back. Oh, 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 she's in the hospital, if I remember right. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, Daniel, do you, do you have any other things related to image formation, uh, mechanisms? Yeah, so um, I'm curious, like, uh, because when it comes to sort of evaluating theories, I know, like, it's a very popular thing in certain papers to sort of put a checklist of data points and stuff like that, um, which is, I, to a certain extent, that's like what we want to do with our theory, show that they have explanatory scope and power. Yeah, um, I, can, I did that in my presentation. I had checklists, yeah. sort of. Yeah, um, but it seems like where we are currently with the data, um, uh where we are currently with the data, uh, there's sort of an impasse where it's like, well, we don't have a complete theory that can sort of unify all these theories to everyone's liking, um, or sorry, all the data points in a way that's going to be simple, non-ad hoc and such. There's I'm nothing simple about it, Dan. Yeah. Nothing I'm, simple about it. I'm curious because uh, since oftentimes science is dependent on, um, like in popular thinkings of science, it's all about the consensus. Unfortunately, a lot of the really interesting questions in science uh, the data is underdetermined under to where we can't have that consensus developed yet. And we have to wait on uh, just further argumentation and further experiments. I'm curious for you, uh, how you sort of view this as uh, people when they sort of uh, select a theory rather than just remaining agnostic on it. Um, do you think that is very, you know, reasonable sort of thing? Is that something that you think that people ought to do? Like just go where the most data is, uh, take the best theory, or should we uh, be more cautious than that? Well, I, you know, I, I think the answer is probably all the above. Look, people pr promote the theory that fits their mindset the best. Um, and theories can change based on new data. The fact that we haven't had new data means that, especially in the last maybe 15, 20 years, a lot of beating the dead horse. That, you know, I mean, there's only so much that you can extract from a data set beyond which when the technology evolves and you can get a lot deeper data by applying new technology, um, then it gets more difficult to support the older conclusions when we have like, like the Kelly Kearse information that, uh, you know, Kelly is, is just as right as Adler was. Neither one of them is right or wrong. They based their conclusions on the data they had. Kelly did some experiments to try and duplicate uh, what was uh, proposed to be on the shroud and did not get the same conclusions as Adler, okay? Does that mean Adler was wrong and Kelly's right or Kelly's wrong and Adler's right? It means that more data is needed before a def more definitive conclusion could be made. That's all. Mm -hmm. Well, I, just to go off that really quickly, that was one of the things I remember watching a talk by uh, Adler and then I've also seen this in um, other folks' writings is that instead of trying to dismiss data that's collected from like folks like Macron and such like that, they were offering interpretations to cohere both uh, data sets 
Um, and I found that very, just as a layperson, very encouraging just to sort of see, oh, there is progress being made, even though you get divergent results. In that. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know how to say this. Uh, everybody's got an opinion, okay? Um, there's a joke I could make, but it wouldn't be appropriate for this, uh, for this venue. Uh, so, but everybody's got opinions and that's human nature. That's the way we are. And those opinions are formulated by our personal experience, our belief systems, our upbringing, our environment, uh, how much we had for lunch today. I mean, all of those things can formulate our opinions and we're all individuals. So we can all have different opinions on the same subject. And so, you know, I think that that's fine. That's why to distinguish real science from personal opinion, real science has to be written up. It has to be done in a certain kind of uh, standardized way. It has to be published in a place where it's reviewed by other experts of the same or similar discipline, and then published in a journal that's credible and has a high impact factor now that there's so many journals out there. Uh, so a journal that's taken very seriously by the scientific community. So there's a lot of latitude in there for people's opinions to sort of push in one direction or the other. And, and look, to me, I don't really worry about that too much. My feeling is this, I can present the evidence. I can tell you what that evidence, my conclusions are based on that evidence. And then you can study that same evidence, that same data, and you can draw a different conclusion. I'm not going to get upset about that. I mean, that's what's how science works. So I'm obligated. And I think more than anything else, I'm beholden to the men who were on that team, more than half who have passed away, to preserve their work, to preserve their reputations, which have been slandered at times. And to stand up for them because they're not here to defend themselves. I cannot defend their work beyond what is published. And I can always say, and I know they would all agree with me that if new data comes along that shows they were wrong about something, they'd be the first to say, I was wrong. Ray Rogers did that with Benford Marino. Called him the lunatic fringe and he said to me on the phone, yeah, give me five minutes, I'm gonna prove they're wrong. Took him about an hour and a half. And he called me back and he was much mellower. And I said, so? He said, I don't believe it. And I said, what, Ray? I think they're right. <laughs> now, coming from Ray Rogers, that was a shock. But that was his honesty. That was his empiricism. And that's why I really get upset when people attack him personally. You can attack his work. You can attack the way he did things. You can attack the conclusions he drew. But when you attack the man who you've never met and never had one moment of interaction with, I'm going to stand up and fight to the death to, to protect his reputation and his name. And if the people who've made those attacks, you know who you are. And I'm coming for you. <laughs> That, almost, that sounded actually pretty scary. So happy Halloween, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's this the fear is not of God. a mask. This is real. That, that's the fear of God right there, right? There well, we you know, hey, the truth will set you free. Yes. All right. So, Teddy, yeah, go. Uh, you, you got cut off, so you can continue. I'll, I'll give you about 15 more minutes or so. Sure. Oh, there Thank you. you. Um, 
one of the interesting things when we're talking about uh, people launching attacks and uh, Walter McCrone did a lot of attacking against not just Ray Rogers, but Sturp in general. And, uh, and he, he was upset because he submitted his own proposal to Turin and it got turned down and because it was just Walter and Sturp had a whole team and a whole list and broke everything down in five minute increments and detailed every experiment. So his was turned down. And I know I've said this before, that if we came back saying the shroud was a fake, he'd have probably been defending it yep. uh, because he understood that taking the opposing position, we're a group of people, we're a team. He's an individual. So he understood that by taking the opposing position, he was going to stand out from the rest. And it worked. He did. We're still talking about him. The guy's been dead since and, well, 2008 or whatever it was. No, 2003 or four. And the interesting thing is, is that when we're in the business of figuring out what is true, it's possible that um, a, a team of people or a huge number of people can be saying one thing. And sometimes there can just be one lone person who actually is correct. And so- yeah, that, it wasn't Walter, that just wasn't Walter McCrone. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, um, I, I, I agree in that in principle and I've seen in reality where sometimes that can be the case. And I, and I agree with you too, that that certainly was not Walter McCrone. But, um, but what we had with Macrone is, you know, he believed he was claiming one thing and it was diametrically opposed to what, uh, especially Heller and Adler were saying, but just all of Sturp. I mean, he- Well, look at all the published data. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he, everything Macrone said was completely the opposite of what all the data showed. And he so, kept saying- You know, what can you do? And he kept saying over and over again, even he, if he, Teddy, he, he could life. never go back and admit he was wrong. Right, right. And um, and so one of the things, because people are going to see him as this world famous microscopist that was known for debunking, uh, you know, sh paintings that were supposed artifacts or things like that. And then you have the experts it's Sturt, but I mean, he was regarded as an expert in his field. And so people see this, this conflict as to who's the, who's either the liar or no. if we want to be kinder, who's the incompetent. Look, there's a huge difference between examining a painting up close and doing whatever microscopy or whatever work you're talking about and examining a tape lifted from the surface of a cloth 5,000 miles away. But so Heller and Adler were still able to see that which Macrone did not. Well, I mean, that's because Macrone, I believe, um, came to his conclusions based on other reasons besides the data. Yeah. Although that's and, and consequently, there's there's nothing left to say after that. That's not what he claimed in his well, book. Well, you know, look, people make claims about everything every day that are completely False. And so one of the things that's so important when people who are not very familiar with shroud evidence, it's natural for them to figure out, well, 
who's either the liar or who's the incompetent, which side is correct. And one of the things that I would like to suggest is something that attorneys use all the time in trial. What and a surprise. It, and, it go, and it goes to when we're listening to somebody's testimony, and of course, Macron through his writings, that's his written testimony. Correct. And when we he was at, in a documentary that Bill Curtis produced too. Oh yeah, yeah. And and so when we look at at the issue of credibility, one of the things that can be brought up in terms of you know, especially when you've got two sides saying something that is so opposite that somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Um, and if we're not attributing it to incompetence, but these are two big experts. So then there's the question of, is somebody just a huge incompetent or is there something else going on to where they're lying or maybe- Well, well calling somebody incompetent, calling somebody a liar is far beyond any place I'd want to go. Macron had his motives for drawing the conclusions he drew. Uh, whether we like it or not, that's what he did. And But I wouldn't call him a liar and I wouldn't call him incompetent. Like I told him, I said, just maybe you should step back from the brink, Walter, because he had put himself in a position where he really didn't have any alternatives left. He was kind of stuck. He was put in a position where his credibility as an expert came from testifying in courtrooms, a place you're very familiar with. Um, if you're proven wrong about something as big as the shroud or the Vinland map or whatever else, um, that's going to damage not only your credibility, but that of your organization as well. And he had a bunch of employees that could have been put out of work if, you know, if he was grossly proven to be wrong. That's so I understand your point, but here's the thing. There's no way to convince everybody of anything. OK, there will always be skeptics who will always be if God himself came down, pointed to the shroud and said, I did that. There would still be skeptics. OK, Thank so, yeah. So the way I see it is this. I have come to accept that this is a place I've chosen to be. Didn't know where it was leading, but this is where it's led. And I have to accept the fact that there will always be doubters. There will always be skeptics. Even Jesus understood that he let Thomas put his hand in the wound. So let's face it, Jesus understood doubt. Mm -hmm. So it, I understand that there will always be those doubts. And I always tell people, look, the bottom line is this. You can look at all the science and all the data and all that. But in the end, what does your heart tell you about this? And, you know, I'm one of those guys that says, forget all the data, follow your heart. Maybe that's the best thing to do. So I'm not too worried about Macron or any of these other skeptics. No. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. So I just want to say thank you to Barry. Thank you to Daniel and thank you to Teddy for all showing up and helping me out. I think you guys uh, had some good questions and stuff like that for Barry. And I hope that his presentation was helpful for the audience. Um, just so everyone knows what I have coming up next week. So I'm bringing on, um, you know, we've heard from the shroud skeptics that only Christians believe in the shroud of Turin, take the pro shroud. Look, we've just had a non-religious Jew on the on the show. He's not the only one as well as part of Stir. I had a religious Muslim, Arif Khan, on the show not too My long ago. My dear friend. Uh, yeah, uh, both of our friends. Um, and um, also next week, I'm having a non-religious agnostic who's pro-Shroud, John Loken from the Shroud oh, yeah. Friends Group on the show to give his... No, his John. Yeah. 
so yeah, uh, look, look forward to that and have a great week, everyone. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Yep.